0: As we touched on last time, in Bible translation, it's important to be able to decide what text you're going to translate before you get to the task of translation. So to do that, we need to compare manuscripts and ancient versions and weigh the evidence, which is called textual criticism. This will be the first part of a conversation with Dr. Dirk Junkent, the editor of the Tyndale House Greek New Testament. At Tyndale House, Dr. Junkent does research in the transmission of the text of the New Testament and maintains an interest in lexical and grammatical studies. So get ready to learn some new things and stretch your mind. And make sure to stick around until the end to find out how you can get a free copy of our guest's book, An Introduction to the Greek New Testament, produced at Tyndale House, Cambridge. I'm Andrew Case. This is Working for the Word. And this is going to be a good one.
1: passion for text of the Bible, for manuscripts, textual criticism, goes actually back way into my childhood. Now, I grew up in one of the uh, many Dutch Reformed denominations in the Netherlands, mm. and now, sitting through two services a day on a Sunday, I started to read the Bible as a child. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was already an avid fantasy and science fiction reader. And then I stumbled over Book of Revelation and Daniel. And that was the sort of fantastic uh, symbolic world that, that I sort of could relate to. Not yeah. that I understood what I was reading, but, but it was definitely sort of uh, on a cosmic scale that, that I, I liked that sort of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then a couple of years later, because I was, I think, uh, around 10 when my uh, interest in scripture started, when I was 14... For the Dutch St. Nicholas Eve, when we tend to exchange gifts, mm. I got my first Greek New Testament, which was a Aland twenty sixth edition. Wow. Uh, I was getting Greek at secondary school, so classical Greek. Awesome. So it was not a, a very big jump to, to read New Testament then. Mm-hmm. But it was such an intimidating edition with so much information with mm. you no know, a lower margin full with variants with its own obscure language and mm. then the references to manuscripts which i did not have a clue what that could mean <laughs> yeah. but at least the questions were planted in my mind and when years later after seminary i found myself doing a masters here in the, in cambridge i uh, i actually sort of you no know, found the opportunity to to start working with manuscripts and start working with textual criticism, uh, looking at how scribes were, were copying manuscripts, etc. Mm-hmm. And yeah, from one thing comes the other. And then I found myself at, at Tindle House working on, on an edition. It, it is wow. a long story with many small steps. Um, my children often quote a line back to me that I used in, in a video mm-hmm. where I say, I love manuscripts. And whenever they get a chance, they will quote that line back to me. But it's actually true. I really love biblical manuscripts.
0: We already have the UBS. We have the, the Nestle Aland, And so why the Tyndale House Greek New Testament? A uh, very good question. And, and it requires a bit of an answer,
1: I think, mm-hmm. because... Of course, besides the UBS and the Nestleiland, there are still editions of the Textus Receptus around, you No, know, the text that... Uh, exactly. analyzed translations such as the King James Version, etc. So mm-hmm. basically the printed text of the 16th century. Uh, then there are various Byzantine text editions around.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: there is the SBL, Greek New Testament. So... Why yet another Greek New Testament? Well, first of all, many of your listeners will be familiar with either the nestle or the UBS. They are two editions that use exactly the same text, so there is no comma, no uh, no letter difference between the two of them. Okay, how they change, how they differ from one another, is in the number of textual variants they mention. Mm -hmm. They differ in the actual presentation of the text. So the UBS tends to have English uh, headings for the various sections, while the uh, Nestle-Land won't. And for the variants they do mention, then the UBS apparatus is much more extensive than the Nestle-Land. So, mm-hmm. Nestle aland gives more variants, still only a selection, but they do give more variants, mm-hmm. uh, but with a lesser uh, sort of number of manuscripts and versions and church fathers than the UBS tends to do. Yeah, And the original vision behind the UBS was that it were, should be a, an edition of the Greek New Testament particularly suited to Bible translators. Well, mm-hmm. the Nestlé Alant has primarily the, uh, the academic in mind. Well, when I was doing my doctoral work um, in the sort of uh, text-critical discussions I had in Cambridge with, uh, with my doctoral supervisor, Peter Head and good friend, Pete Williams, who was then a colleague, is, is now my, my boss, we were sort of thinking there were things with the Nestlé Alant text we were not particularly happy with. And it had to do with detailed decisions that, that were made, where I think where we thought that they were sometimes possible to make better decisions. Okay. And our initial thought was simply to produce a sort of textual commentary mm-hmm. where we would basically say why we would differ from the originally Nestle Aland. Okay. Well then Nestle Aland, of course, brings out addition after addition so such a commentary would be out of date quite quite quickly plus we thought it's a little bit unfair to pick and choose the variants you want to comment on without doing the hard work of actually going through all the variants etc there are differences in methodology so we tend to be very manuscript-based. For us, the, the manuscript is really the, not just the carrier of the text, but it basically embodies the text. So we mm-hmm. tend to look at what scribes in actual manuscripts tend to do or not tend to do. So we're looking at scribal habits in copying. Uh And there is a whole sort of thought behind it that copying is basically a cognitive process. So in order to understand copying, you must try to understand what's going on in the mind of a scribe. What are the reasons why copying goes wrong? Right. And in only a tiny minority of the cases, copying goes wrong because the scribe wants to make a change. 99 of 100 times, changes happen because... Just something goes wrong in the cognition of the scribe. Something goes wrong either in reading error or a memory error or a writing error, but none of them have any sort of deep thoughts behind them. Sure. Just because they happen. And by looking at what scribes do, scribal habits, and looking at patterns in manuscripts, We thought that we would come up with probably an original contribution to the whole field of textual criticism, namely an edition where the editorial input and the editorial control of the text would perhaps be less visible than in some of the existing editions. I I think we, we succeeded in that. So we have a bias for early manuscripts, which is probably true for the Nestlé Aland as well. If we have a mm-hmm. good reason, it must be a very good reason, we will basically ignore the early manuscripts and go for a later one. But our approach is very much based on the knowledge of what's happening within the, the manuscripts. Mm-hmm. Now, you may know that the Nestlé Aland, starting in sort of early two thousand has adopted a way of organizing the testimony of manuscripts that is called the coherence-based genealogical method. And I think it is a useful tool, but I don't think it is as useful as is sometimes claimed.
0: Where would somebody read about that new theory of arranging the manuscripts?
1: I think Peter Gurry wrote a very nice introduction to the coherence-based genealogical method. Okay. He doesn't give much of a critical analysis in the sense of looking at some of the fundamental questions you could ask of the method. But in order to understand what's going on, I think that's a very useful uh, useful introduction.
0: Okay. Yeah. Now, if someone were to compare, for instance, the philosophy behind the Nestle Land and the BHS, the Biblia Hebraica Stuttgartensia, what would you say is similar and what would you say is different for the editors involved? Yeah, the two are massively different.
1: So the Nestle Land, just as the Tindal House edition, is a critical text and it is an eclectic text. More or less, we approach every textual variant almost on its own. Uh, Perhaps we do it slightly less than Nestlaland, but you have dealt with the textual uh, variant in one verse, and then you go on to the next, and you basically start afresh. What the BHS does is they give you the text of one particular manuscript almost in all its details and then puts all the uh, editorial work in the lower margin. Mm-hmm. So in the BHS is what's called a diplomatic edition. It gives you the text of a very carefully copied manuscript without hardly, without hardly any error in it. And there is some editorial work in the sense how some of the accents are placed or some of those tiny details. Uh, But by and large, it is as you will find it in the manuscript. While a critical edition of the Greek New Testament will contain lots of elements which you do not find in a Greek Greek manuscript. And it is basically the editor's selection of the textual variants that you will find uh, dispersed over, over tens of manuscripts.
0: Now, what about the philosophy of creating the apparatus between the two? I know that the BHS tends to be more on the, some would say the liberal side, where they would have a stronger tendency to challenge the Masoretic text that they're presenting and come up with theories, conjectures in the apparatus as to what they think it should be, even without evidence.
1: Yes, there there is a... Uh... A quite a different approach to the textual criticism. Of course, the BHS is now basically supplanted by the BH the Q, I think, the Quinta. Right.
0: The Quinta, yeah.
1: And their approach is much more conservative than BHS. I okay. Mean, there yeah. are there are really quite a few notes in the BHS where you know, if you ask the the average sort of Hebrew specialist that, that they will say. Yes, that, that's a little bit enthusiastic with the thoughts of the editor here. Or mm-hmm. a bit speculative here and there. So now, the NA also,
0: doesn't ever do stuff like that.
1: Yes, the NA always contains one or two at the most places where it will print a reading that is found in no single Greek manuscript. Oh. Um, so that those are called conject, conjectural emendations mm-hmm. there is one in the, the most recent Nestle Aland in uh, in 2 Peter where instead of will be found it prints will not be found, which is, of course, quite a difference. Yeah. And the not is actually present in, in one of the versions, so one of the early translations will have not at that point. The Greek is not straightforward, but, but I don't think it, it warrants a conjectural emendation there. Okay. Uh, it used to have one in, in Acts 13. And, of course, if you take a large enough stretch of text in either the Nestle Aland or in the Tyndall House edition, you will find not a single manuscript with that particular text. So mm. if you take, for example, the whole of John, well, the selection of variants that the Nestlé Allant or the Tyndall House edition will have made is probably not found in one particular manuscript as such. Yeah. But it is always mm-hmm. the combination of you know, picking the best reading out of, or
0: a lot of imperfect manuscripts. So are there any other differences that have given rise to this need for the Tyndale House version?
1: Yes. It has to do with the sort of intended audience mm. as well. So just as the UBS is, was basically aimed at the translator and the Nestlé for the serious scholar, I, to, to put it very bluntly, I made the Tyndall House edition for myself. Mm. Uh, That is to say, I wanted to have a very good text of the Greek New Testament that I could take to church and just use in church. Mm -hmm. Now, the Nestle Land as a scholarly edition, it gives you basically information overkill for that sort of purpose. UBS did not look really like a Bible to me either. Well, the Tindal House edition feels like a Bible. It, it has the appearance of, of a Bible. And it is actually a Bible. The Tindal House edition stays in its formatting closer to the manuscripts than others before. It's the way how we indicate paragraphs and where we have par- paragraphs that goes back to, to manuscripts. And in that sense, it is a very clean text with only a relatively few mention of textual variants and those textual variants are never indicated in the running text. Now, we wanted to keep the running text as as clean as possible not mm. to distract from actually reading and studying the text. Mm-hmm. So in, in that sense it is uh, it is for those who want to study the text rather than the history of the text. Okay. Yeah,
0: it's very helpful. You also mentioned in your book that there's a difference in the ordering of the books. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, that's that's quite an interesting one. in In the manuscript tradition, the uh, in the Greek manuscript tradition, the order is always you no know, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Uh, that that's always the same. Then Acts, but mm-hmm. Acts is always grouped with the Catholic epistles. You no, know, with. James 1 and 2, Peter, 1, 2, 3, John, and Jude. And mm. then you will get the letters of Paul. Okay. Behind So though we tend to go from Acts in sort of modern Western tradition, from Acts straight into Romans, mm-hmm. in uh, in most Greek Bibles, though you would go from Acts into James. Oh. And then only after the Catholic epistles. To, into Romans. We're, we're not the first one to, to print it this way. I mean, it is following the majority of, of manuscripts. There are uh, various uh, Greek New Testaments printed in, in the past and even in the present that will do exactly the same. Now, if you look at the, the big scholarly edition that has been made now of Acts and the Catholic epistles, the Editio Critica Major, Mm-hmm. which is really uh, an addition for the nerds because it's it's not made for reading whatsoever but okay it shows you as much evidence textual evidence as you can put together on a single page and they have adopted the same order of you know, combining acts and the catholic epistles in the numbering of the individual volumes and from there on go go
0: to uh to pauline letters okay okay fascinating could you walk us through the exact order as we would find them in the Tyndale House version? Yes. So the Gospels are, as usual, Matthew, Mark,
1: Luke, John. Mm-hmm. Then you get Acts. Then you get James, 1 and 2 Peter, 1, to 3 John, Jude. And then we go to Paul's letters with Hebrews, the last one before Revelation. mmm Because the interesting thing is when it comes for text-critical purposes, Hebrews has always been considered as part of the Pauline corpus. Yeah. So it's always grouped with the letters of Paul. So I don't need to ask uh, or to answer all sorts of difficult questions of what do I think of the authorship of (laughs) Hebrews. I simply follow kind of manuscript convention
0: here. Okay. Now, in the... Hebrew canon, there's often commentary about why certain books come after other books in the arrangement, which is different from our English Bibles. Are there certain things that you would comment about the arrangement that you have in the Tyndale House version and and why that is? Why do you think some of the early arrangers did that? Yeah, I've been thinking about it. Uh, First
1: of all, I can see why the order as the Tinder House edition has it, actually came into existence. Because if you follow Acts, then the first half is the story of the apostles, such as James and Peter, and the second half of Acts is the story of Paul. So mm-hmm. also to have the, the letters of you know, James, Peter, John at the first and only then the letters of Paul, I can see that there is some sort of chronological justification for okay. it. Um, and then I was thinking, where does our order actually come from? Oh, to have Acts before, the, uh, before Paul rather than before uh, James and, and the others. And in a sense, it was quite a conscious decision that Erasmus took in the 16th century. He had precedence for it, so it was not completely his innovation, but he took a quite conscious decision to present the books in the order as we all know it now. So mm-hmm. he was not following Greek models I thought at the time that he was following Latin models, but that doesn't seem to be the case as well, although there are parallels, but it mm-hmm. was basically a quite conscious decision he took, but I don't know why
0: he took that decision, okay. but it's quite recent in that sense. Well, let's go ahead and get into five examples where the Tyndale House Greek New Testament went a different direction from the UBS and Nestle Aland, and why. Some time ago, I wrote a blog
1: post on the Evangelical Textual Criticism blog, in mm. which I sort of counted all the differences between the uh, Tindal House edition, the Nestle Aland 28, and the then freshly published Editio Critica Major edition of Acts, oh, which wow. will be the text of Acts in the Nestle Aland 29. Which okay. is coming up in a couple of years. Okay. So we know the text of Acts there already from the Editio Critica Major. And I found out that there were 68 differences between the Tindal House edition and the Nesseland 28, and 76 with the ECM. Hmm. Now, over 28 chapters, that is not a, a huge number, especially right. because. The majority of these differences are uh, presence or absence of articles or the word order of an adjective and a noun and that sort of thing. So sure. uh, fairly inconsequential. But a good example of a disagreement is, is found in, in Acts 9, verse 8. That's on the Paul on the Damascus road. Mm-hmm. Oh, he rises up from the ground And then the difference, uh, the textual variant is, he saw nothing, so Uden, or -hmm. he saw no one, Udena. So it's the difference between one letter. So did he see nothing or did he see no one? Well, here the ECM went for no one. So Paul saw no one. Mm -hmm. And for me, actually, this textual variant was fairly easy to resolve because it's only in the previous verse that it says that the people heard the voice, but saw no one. And then we have Paul rising from uh, no, from where he was thrown on the ground, and he saw, well, or did he saw no one, or did he saw nothing? Here you have, I think, an example of the influence of the immediate context,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: the immediate context says no one, And therefore, a scribe is inclined to repeat what he has just written. Also, Paul saw no one. Right. But I think it should be nothing there. Those are translatable differences, and they are of sort of somewhat importance for this particular sentence. Sure. Sure. So there are many small differences, such as these. Now then we go to the single biggest difference, because that's of course probably more interesting. Okay. And the biggest difference is how we treat uh, Luke 23, verse 32, the famous words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. There are quite a few early manuscripts that omit these words. For me, this is probably one of the most important variants in the whole of the Greek New Testament, because it may actually affect how we see what... Christ on the cross was actually doing, what was his mindset, what, what was he saying. Now the Nestleland 28 does print these words in the main text, but includes them in double square brackets. And mm-hmm. double square brackets are one category kind of more severe than the single square brackets. Because the double square brackets indicate that those words are almost certainly not part of the original text. Mm. I think, actually, there's a very good case to be made that they are part of the original text and that is that Luke actually wrote these words Mm. from the beginning. So here we have kind of a difference in... Okay, it is in brackets, but it is still quite an important variant. I see. Now, then there is uh, another sort of perhaps famous variant in uh, Paul, in, in Romans, and that's Romans 5.1. Well, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a textual variant in the uh, we have, in the echo men, because it's either an indicative with uh, the bind vocal omicron, no? echo man with a mm-hmm. micron. Or it is a subjunctive, and then we have an omega as a pine focal, a co-men. Now, in the, most of the early centuries, and, and later as well, the omicron and the omega would be uh, pronounced almost identically. So it's very easy to jump to one on the other.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think simply based on the external evidence, I think the text should read a subjunctive. So that okay. might mean that Paul is saying, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. So mm. Now that we have been justified, we actually have good peace to or good reason to experience that peace with God. Mm. In propositional terms, I don't think there is that much difference sure. between it. But when it comes to the flow of the argument in how Paul actually you know, builds up uh, what he is saying, in this chapter that's, that's quite a substantial difference the fourth one is and it and again probably a, a double square bracket thing is that i think that i am less certain about the ending of the gospel of mark than perhaps the nestle tradition is okay Um, So the ending of Mark, it's a famous textual problem. Now, was it part of what Mark original wrote from verse 9 to 20 or thereabouts? Yeah. Um, Or do we have a rather abrupt ending? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I can see that the long ending as we have it now is clearly written in a different voice. The tone is different. The register is different. Now, there are Two manuscripts that omit long ending. Two Greek manuscripts, which is not a lot. They happen mm-hmm. to be out to earliest manuscript, but but still, um, it's not a lot. However, yeah. the problem was known already in the fourth century. The problem of the long ending of Mark. So it's a very old problem. So we can trace the history mm-hmm. quite quite far back. But I can in- envisage that there are scenarios that just as we notice there is a difference in voice, so people in the ancient world may have noticed there is a difference in voice and therefore cut the longer ending. That is a possibility, simply because I cannot be sure. I don't want to, to pronounce such a sort of hard judgment on the long ending of Mark and say it is
0: definitely not part of the original writing of Mark. Mm-hmm. So the Nestle Aland is dead certain that it was not original. That's right. It uses the term with certainty in in, in the German. Right. right. All right. So you you have more of a tolerance for some uncertainty there. So what does the Tyndale House version do exactly?
1: What we do is actually the same as many uh, English versions do. Mm -hmm. And that is we have a short note after Mark 16:9, that says in some of the manuscripts the evangelist stops here, but in many others also the following is contained, okay. and then we follow with the long ending, which is not that dissimilar of what the NIV or the ESV does at this particular point. And That's this good. goes back in the manuscript tradition a long, uh, a long way to have a note of this uh, sort. This Sure. Well, good. And I think we have one more, right? Yes, that's right. And that has to do with spelling issues. Though the spelling of many words in the Greek manuscripts tradition is sometimes rather confusing and is certainly not uniform, Mm -hmm. I still think that an editor should give its best effort to come as closely to the earliest spelling as possible. So that means that in the Tyndall House edition, uh, not every word is spelled consistently. Of course, people in the Hebrew Bible are used to this phenomenon or to have the uh, matras lectiones within a word or or not, and to have the same word spelled differently at different places. That's not a real problem for a Hebrew scholar. Mm -hmm. Uh, Greek editions have always tended to standardize spelling. We have basically come back and we go for the majority of the earliest uh, manuscripts. We let them decide the spelling, which means that in certain words, uh, sometimes we spell an e, an iota, with an epsilon iota. Or when you have a prefixed preposition, uh, sometimes we leave the the final uh, consonant of the preposition unassimilated. Mm -hmm. So, for example, instead of se lego, we will write sun lego with the uh, nu Mm -hmm. uh, in between. And that is simply because that seems to be seems to have been the way in which the manuscripts did it. Mm -hmm. And that can sometimes lead to to very interesting uh, observations, actually.
0: I think that was probably the most surprising thing that I saw in your book about the difference of your approach. Do you think this is a completely novel idea, or have there been people who have proposed doing this in the past? Yes, people... People have proposed doing that in the past
1: and have done it actually. If you go back to Westcott and Hort, they quite often have a, a non-standard spelling, and and even if you compare, for example, the Nestle Aland 26 with the Nestle Aland 28, the Nestle Aland 26 had much more tolerance for variety of spelling than the National 28 has.
0: Okay. So There is a process of ongoing standardization. So could you give an example, a concrete example of how this would matter in your version, uh, how a, a spelling decision might affect somebody's reading of the text? Oh, there's a beautiful example in uh, 1 Corinthians uh,
1: 6, 9. Mm -hmm. where Paul has first listed a whole set of vices. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, but some of you were these things. And then he starts, but you have been washed, uh, but you have been sanctified, but you have been justified. There's three times a rather emphatic Allah, but Mm -hmm. in the Greek. Now, before a vowel, Allah could use its the word but uh, Allah could use its final vowel and become abbreviated to al. Right, and it would not just lose its final vowel; it will lose its accent as well. So it becomes part of the accentual unit of the word that follows. Right, And the word that follows must, must start with, with a vowel for this to happen. Kind of like now contractions in, this, in English. That's right. Now, in this particular case, there is overwhelming evidence that all the manuscripts actually kept the alpha here, even though the verb following uh, started with a vowel. Mm. And you, you can almost imagine that this was done with reason. Because an accented Allah actually you know, draws even more emphasis towards mm-hmm. it, uh, more of a focus. Because there is already the remarkable thing of three uh, clauses, all uh, starting with Allah. Yeah. So that in itself is already significant. Mm-hmm. But then to have the option here to keep the accent. With Allah and not sort of contracted to the into the following word, is is another sort of deliberate choice which heightens that sense of standing out of but. Um, in in English, that would probably be similar to the meaningful pause. But you have been justified. But mm-hmm. and yeah, and there you see performance of the text almost no reflected in the way how a single uh, conjunction is spelled.
0: So this would be an orthographical influence on your discourse analysis.
1: Yeah, definitely,
0: yes. Yeah, that's fascinating. Kind of like an italics that we might use in English.
1: Yeah, Yeah. indeed. I I was wondering sort of how how to reflect this, because this is, of course, kind of uh, something that this particular word can do, Mm-hmm. In the particular circumstance of where the following word starts with a vowel, so it's it's quite a specific narrow uh, set of situations
0: in which this can happen.
1: But, yeah, uh, but nonetheless, think, it does. <laughs>
0: thinking about it more, I think you know the absence of a contraction in English, where we would normally say "can't" and we say "cannot," that really emphasizes the "not" a lot more. I yeah. think for a native English speaker. Uh, and there's surprising places where you could not do the contraction that would really bring that into focus. So yeah, that's a very
1: good uh, comparison. That that's the type of mechanism that's that's indeed going on here.
0: We're going to continue this conversation in the next episode. So make sure to check back and hear more fascinating things from Dr. Jungkind. He has also generously offered to give away five free hard copies of his book. An Introduction to the Greek New Testament produced at Tyndale House, Cambridge. So, if you'd like to enter to win one of these copies, simply email me at andrewdcase at gmail.com, which will also be in the description, and tell me, number one, how you found this podcast, and number two, what one of your favorite episodes has been. That's it. It's that simple. So, thanks again for listening. Working for the Word is a podcast where we believe that the Bible is a unified, God-breathed, God-centered, hope-giving book, sweeter than honey and pointing to Jesus. This podcast exists ultimately to help us all treasure the Bible more, go deeper into it, and become like the man of Psalm 1.